Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Before I get started today, I can't wait to let y'all know that Season 3 of LeVar Burton Reads drops in your podcast feed next month. That's right, July 24th begins Season 3 of the pod, and we have some incredible stories lined up, and we are including some of your listener requests as well. I cannot wait to share them with you. And I hope that today's episode will tide you over in the meantime. I have been saving this live episode to share. Now, this past January, the science fiction and fantasy community and the world and readers at large lost the incredible author, Ursula K. Le Guin. You know Ursula as the author of many, many short stories, novels, and essays, both for adults and children. She wrote the Earthsea series, The Lathe of Heaven, and Cat Wings, and her work continues to be loved by people around the world. So when I visited Portland, the place she called home for many years, it was only natural that I'd want to read a story by Ursula. And I was so pleased that the publishers of her work and her estate supported me in that effort. I was also happy that the classically trained guitarist, composer, and musical storyteller Marisa Anderson joined me to play some stunning musical accompaniment. And after the story, I was joined by the Portland-based writer, activist, and scholar Walida Imarisha to talk about Ursula's work. I knew Walida as the co-editor of the anthology entitled Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Movements, so stay tuned toward the end of the episode for that discussion with Walida. Now, today's story by Ursula Le Guin is entitled The Flyers of Guy. It's one of her later works that was published in the early 2000s. You can find it in her collection, The Unreal and The Real. It's part of a series of visitations to other planes of existence, and this story is almost written as an ethnographic brief, if you will, about a fantastic culture of people called the Geyer. And, as always, Ursula's imagination takes elements of our world and our culture and builds the fantastic on to that world. So, without further ado, if you are ready, 
Let's take a deep breath. And begin. The Flyers of Guy by Ursula K. Le Guin. The people of Guy look pretty much like people from our plane, except that they have plumage, not hair. A fine, fuzzy down on the heads of infants becomes a soft, short coat of speckled dun on the fledglings, and with adolescence, this grows out into a full head of feathers. Most men have ruffs at the back of the neck, shorter feathers all over the head, and tall, erectile crests. The head plumage of males is brown or black, barred and marked variously with bronze, red, green, and blue. Women's plumes usually grow long, sometimes sweeping down the back almost to the floor with soft, curling, trailing edges like the tails of ostriches. The colors of the feathers of women are vivid, purple, scarlet, coral, turquoise, gold. Geyer men and women are downy in the pubic region and have pit and arm down as well and often have short, fine plumage all over the whole body. People with brightly colored body feathers are a cheerful sight when naked, but they are much troubled by lice and nits. Molting is a continuous process, not seasonal. As people age, not all the molted feathers grow back, and patchy baldness is common among both men and women over 40. Most people, therefore, save the best of their head feathers as they molt out to make into wigs or false crests as needed. Those whose plumage is scanty or dull can also buy feather wigs at special shops. There are fads for bleaching one's feathers or spraying them gold or curling them. And wig shops in the cities will bleach, dye, spray, or crimp one's plumage and sell headdresses in whatever the current fashion is. Poor women with specially long splendid head feathers often sell them to the wig shops for a fairly good price. The gyre write with quill pens. It is traditional for a father to give a set of his own stiff, rough quills to a child beginning to learn to write. Lovers exchange feathers with which they write love letters to one another. A pretty custom, referred to in a famous scene in the play The Misunderstanding by Inui Nui. Oh, my betraying plume that wrote his love to her, his love, my feather, and my blood. The gear are a staid, steady, traditional people, uninterested in innovation, shy of strangers. They are resistant to technological innovation and novelty. Attempts to sell them ballpoint pens or airplanes or to introduce them to enter the wonderful world of electronics have failed. They continue writing letters to one another with quill pens 
calculating with their heads, walking afoot, or riding in carriages pulled by large dog-like animals called Anugnu, learning a few words in foreign languages when absolutely necessary, and watching classic stage plays written in traditional meters. No amount of exposure to the useful technologies, the marvelous gadgets, the advanced scientific knowledge of other planes, for Guy is a fairly popular tourist stop, seems to rouse envy or greed, or a sense of inferiority in the Gyron bosom. They go on doing exactly as they have always done. Not stodgily, exactly, but with a kind of dullness, a polite indifference and impenetrability, behind which may lie supreme self-satisfaction. Or something quite different. The crasser kind of tourists from other planes refer to the gyre, of course, as birdies, bird brains, featherheads, and so on. Many visitors from livelier planes visit the small, placid cities, take rides out into the country in Onugunu chases attend sedate but charming balls for the gyre like to dance, and enjoy an old-fashioned evening at the theater without losing one degree of their contempt for the natives. Feathers but no wings is the conventional judgment that sums it up. Such patronizing visitors may spend a week in Guy without ever seeing a winged native or learning that what they took for a bird or a jet was a woman on her way across the sky. The Geyer don't talk about their winged people, unless asked. They don't conceal them or lie about them, but they don't volunteer information. I had to ask questions fairly persistently to be able to write the following description. Wings never develop before late adolescence. There is no sign at all of the propensity until suddenly a girl of 18, a boy of 19, wakes up with a slight fever and an ache in the shoulder blades. After that comes a year or more of great physical stress and pain, during which the subject must be kept quiet, warm, and well-fed. Nothing gives comfort but food. The nascent flyers are terribly hungry most of the time, and being wrapped or swaddled in blankets while the body restructures, remakes, rebuilds itself. The bones lighten and become porous. The whole upper body musculature changes, and bony protuberances developing rapidly from the shoulder blades grow out into immense alar processes. The final stage is the growth of the wing feathers, which is not painful. The primaries are, as feathers go, massive and may be a meter long. The wing spread of an adult male gyre is about four meters, that of a woman usually about a half meter less. Stiff feathers sprout from the calves and ankles to be spread wide in flight. Any attempt to interfere, to prevent or halt the growth of wings is useless and harmful or fatal. If the wings are not allowed to develop, the bones and muscles begin to twist and shrivel, causing unendurable, unceasing pain. Amputation of the wings or flight feathers at any stage results in a slow, 
agonizing death. Among some of the most conservative, archaic peoples of the Gaia, the tribal societies living along the icy coasts of the North Polar regions and the herdsfolk of the cold, barren steppes of the far south, this vulnerability of the winged people is incorporated into religion and ritual behavior. In the North, as soon as a youth shows the fatal signs, he or she is captured and handed over to the tribal elders. With rituals similar to their funeral rites, they fasten heavy stones to the victim's hands and feet, then go in procession to a high cliff above the sea and push the victim over, shouting, Fly! Fly for us! Among the steppe tribes, the wings are allowed to develop completely, and the youth is carefully, worshipfully attended all year. Let us say that it is a girl who has shown the fatal symptoms. In her feverish trances, she functions as a shaman or soothsayer. The priests listen and interpret all her sayings to the people, and when her wings are full grown, they are bound down to her back. Then the whole tribe set out to walk with her to the nearest high place, cliff or crag, often a journey of weeks in that flat, desolate country. On the heights, after days of dancing and imbibing hallucinatory smoke from smudge fires of bayou-bayou wood, the priests go with the young woman, all of them drugged, dancing and singing, to the edge of the cliff. There, Her wings are freed. She lifts them for the first time, and then, like a young falcon, leaving the nest, leaps stumbling off the cliff into the air, wildly beating those huge, untried wings. Whether she flies or falls, all the men of the tribe, screaming with excitement, shoot at her with bow and arrow or throw their razor-pointed hunting spears. She falls, pierced by dozens of spears and arrows, The women scramble down the cliff, and if there is any life left in her, they beat it out with stones. Then they throw and heap stones over the body till it is buried under a cairn. There are many cairns at the foot of every steep hill or crag in all the steppe country. Ancient cairns furnish stones for the new ones. Such young people may try to escape their fate by running away from their people, but the weakness and fever that attend the development of wings cripple them, and they never get far. There is a folktale in the south marches of Merm of a winged man who leapt up into the air from the sacrificial crag and flew so strongly that he escaped the spears and arrows and disappeared into the sky. The original story ends there. The playwright Norwer used it as the basis of a romantic tragedy. In his play, Transgression, the young man has appointed a tryst with his beloved and flies there to meet with her. But she has unwittingly betrayed him to another suitor who lies in wait. As the lovers embrace, the suitor hurls his spear and kills the winged one. The maiden pulls out her own knife and kills the murderer, and then, after exchanging anguished farewells with the not-quite-expired winged one, stabs herself. It is melodramatic. But, if well-staged, very moving. 
Everybody has tears in their eyes when the hero first descends like an eagle, and when dying, he enfolds his beloved in his great bronze wings. A version of transgression was performed a few years ago on my plane in Chicago at the actual reality theater. It was probably inevitably, but unfortunately, translated as Sacrifice of the Angels. There is absolutely no mythology or lore concerning anything like our angels among the gyre. Sentimental pictures of sweet little cherubs with baby wings hovering guardian spirits or grander images of divine messengers would strike them as a hideous mockery of something every parent and every adolescent dreads. A rare but fearful deformity curse, a death sentence. Among the urbanized gyre, that dread is mitigated to some degree since the winged ones are treated not as sacrificial scapegoats, but with tolerance and even sympathy, as people with a most unfortunate handicap. We may find this odd, to soar over the heads of the earthbound to race with eagles and soar with condors, to dance on air, to ride the wind, not in a noisy metal box or on a contraption of plastic and fabric and straps, but on one's own vast, strong, splendid, outstretched wings. How could that be anything but a joy, a freedom? How stodgy. Sullen-hearted, leaden-souled the gyre must be to think that people who can fly are cripples. But they do have their reasons. The fact is that winged gyre can't trust their wings. No fault can be found in the actual design of the wings. They serve admirably with a little practice for short flights, for effortless gliding and soaring on updrafts, and with more practice for stunts and tumbling aerial acrobatics. When winged people are fully mature, if they fly regularly, they may achieve great stamina. They can stay aloft almost indefinitely. Many learn to sleep on the wing. Flights of over 2,000 miles have been recorded with only brief hover stops to eat. Most of these very long flights were made by women whose lighter bodies and bone structure give them the advantage over distance. Men with their more powerful musculature would take the speed flying awards if there were any, but the gyre, at least the wingless majority, are not interested in records or awards, certainly not in competitions that involve a high risk of death. The problem is that flyers' wings are liable to sudden, total, disastrous failure. Flight engineers and medical investigators on Geyer and elsewhere have not been able to account for it. The design of the wings has no detectable fault. Their failure must be caused by an as-yet unidentified physical or psychological factor, an incompatibility of the ALAR processes with the rest of the body. Unfortunately, no weakness shows up beforehand. There is no way to predict wing failure. It occurs without warning. A flyer who has flown his entire adult life without a shadow of trouble takes off one morning and, having attained altitude, suddenly, appallingly finds his wings will not obey him. 
They are shuddering, closing, clapping down along his sides, paralyzed, and he falls from the sky like a stone. The medical literature states that as many as one flight in 20 ends in failure. Flyers I talk to believe that wing failure is not nearly as frequent as that, citing cases of people who have flown daily for decades. But it is not a matter they want to talk about with me, or perhaps even with one another. They seem to have no preventative precautions or rituals, accepting it as truly random. Failure may come on the first flight or the thousandth. No cause has been found for it. Hereditary, age, inexperience, fatigue, diet, emotion, physical condition. Every time a flyer goes up, the chance of wing failure is the same. Some survive the fall, but they never fall again because they can never fly again. Once the wings have failed, they are useless. They remain paralyzed, dragging along behind and beside their owner like a huge, heavy feather cape. Foreigners ask why flyers don't carry parachutes in case of wing failure. No doubt they could. It is a question of temperament. Winged people who fly are those willing to take the risk of wing failure. Those who do not want the risk do not fly. Or perhaps those who consider it a risk do not fly, and those who fly do not consider it a risk. An amputation of the wings is invariably fatal, and surgical removal of any part of them causes acute, incurable, crippling pain. The fallen flyers and those who choose not to fly must drag their wings about all their lives, through the streets, up and down the stairs. Their changed bone structure is not well suited to ground life. They tire easily, walking, and suffer many fractures and muscular injuries. Few non-flying flyers live to 60. Those who do face their death every time they take off. Some of them, however, are still alive and still flying at 80. LeVar Burton Reads is supported by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundations they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. And Lord knows we need that in this day and age. They have five different types of projects, and there's something for kids of all different ages to try. They create hands-on projects for kids that are not only super fun, but also educational in a very cool way. Like you as a parent, KiwiCo wants kids to be fearless innovators, so they design projects to help them develop their own creativity. And it's convenient. Absolutely everything you need to build a project is in the box, which means no extra trips to Target or to the craft store. And gifting a KiwiCo subscription to the kid in your life will make them smarter and quite possibly make you their favorite person. Right now, KiwiCo is offering LeVar Burton Reads listeners the chance to try them out for free. 
To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit KiwiCo.com slash LeVar. That's KiwiCo, K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash LeVar, L-E-V-A-R, to try KiwiCo for free. Support for today's show comes from Hungry Root. Hungry Root delivers a weekly box of vegan and gluten-free convenience foods to help people feel great. With over 75 dishes to choose from, like the fan-favorite sweet potato pad thai, and I can certainly attest that that sweet potato pad thai is the bomb. It's made with sweet potato noodles, spicy peanut sauce, snap peas. They've also got the almond chickpea cookie dough, which can be eaten straight from the container or baked in minutes, and there's sure to be something for everyone. Plus, in each box, they include everything customers need to make that week's dishes, including breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks in less than 15 minutes. Or you can choose from several ready-to-eat options. They're all low in sodium and free of preservatives and added sugars, so it's no wonder that customers rave that the quality and simplicity of these fresh, easy, convenient, and creative meals can't be beat. My favorite right now is their eggplant cauliflower dirty rice. Never thought I would say that I loved eggplant cauliflower dirty rice, but there I'm saying it. It's true. Come at me. You can try it for yourself. Just go to HungryRoot.com and use the promo code LAVAR for $25 off of each of your first two deliveries. That's a total savings of 50 bucks. All you need to do is go to HungryRoot.com, use the promo code L-E-V-A-R. Now... Let's get back to our story. It is quite a wonderful sight, Takeoff. Human beings aren't as awkward as I would have expected, having seen the graceless flapping of such masters of the air as pelicans and swans getting airborne. Of course, it is easiest to launch from a perch or height, but if there's no such convenience handy, all they need is a run of... 20 or 25 meters, enough for a couple of lifts and downbeats of the great extended wings and then a step that doesn't touch the ground and then they're up, aloft, soaring, maybe circling back overhead to smile and wave down at uplifted faces before arrowing above the roofs or over the hills. They fly with the legs close together body arched a little backward, the leg feathers fanning out into a hawk-like tail as needed, as the arms have no integral muscular connection to the wings. Winged gyre are six-limbed creatures. The hands may be kept down along the sides to reduce air resistance and increase speed. In a leisurely flight, they may do anything hands do, scratch the head, peel a fruit, sketch an aerial view of the landscape. Hold a baby. Though the last I saw only once. And it troubled me. I talked several times with a winged gyre named Ardia Dia. What follows is all in his own words, recorded with his permission during our conversations. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, when I first found out, when it started happening to me, you know, I was floored. 
terrified. I couldn't believe it. I, I'd been so sure it wouldn't happen to me. When we were kids, you know, we used to joke about so-and-so being flighty or, or say he'll be taking off one of these days. But me? Grow wings? It wasn't going to happen to me. So when I got this headache and then my teeth ached for a while and then my back began to hurt, I kept telling myself it was a toothache. I had an infection, an abscess. But when it really began, there was no more fooling myself. It was terrible. I, I really can't remember much about it. It, it was bad. It, it hurt. First, like knives running back and forth between my shoulders and, and claws digging up and down my spine. And, and, and then all over, my arms, my legs, my fingers, my face. And I was so weak. I, I couldn't stand up. I, I got out of bed and fell down on the floor and I couldn't get up. I lay there calling mother, Mama, Mama, please come. She was asleep. She worked late waiting in a restaurant and didn't get home till way after midnight, and so she slept hard, and I could feel the floor getting hot underneath me. I was so hot with fever, and I'd try to move my face to a cooler place on the floor. Well, I, I don't know if the pain eased off or I just got used to it, but it was a bit better after a couple of months. It was hard, though, and... Long and dull and strange, lying there, but not on, on my back. You can't lie on your back ever, you, you know. Hard to sleep at night. When it hurt, it always hurt most at night. Always a little fevery, thinking strange thoughts, having funny ideas. And never able to think a thought through, never able to quite hold on to an idea. I, I felt as if I myself really couldn't think anymore. Thoughts just came into me and, and went through me, and I watched them, and no plans for the future anymore, because what was my future now? I'd thought of being a schoolteacher. My mother had been so excited about that, she'd encouraged me to stay in school the extra year to qualify for teacher's college. Well, I had my 19th birthday lying there in my little room in our three-room flat over the grocery on Lacemakers Lane. My mother bought some fancy food from the restaurant and a bottle of honey wine, and we tried to have a celebration, but I couldn't drink the wine, and she couldn't eat because she was crying. But I could eat. I was always starving, hungry, and, and, and that cheered her up. Poor mama. Well, um, so I, I came out of that little by little, and the wings grew in, great, ugly, dangling, naked things, disgusting to start with, and even worse when they started to fledge with the pin feathers like great pimples, but... When the primaries and secondaries came out and I began to feel the muscles there and, and to be able to shudder my wings, shake them, raise them a little, and, and I wasn't feverish anymore or I'd got used to running a fever all the time. I'm not really sure which it is. And, and I was able to get up and walk around 
and feel how light my body was now? As if gravity couldn't affect me, even with the weight of those huge wings dragging after me, but I could lift them, get them up off the floor. Not myself, though. I was earthbound. My body felt light, but I wore out even trying to walk, got weak and, and shaky. I used to be pretty good at the broad jump, but now I couldn't get both feet off the ground at once. I was feeling a lot better, but it bothered me to be so weak, and I felt closed in, trapped. Then a flyer came by, a man from uptown who'd heard about me. Flyers look after kids going through the change. He'd looked in a couple of times to reassure my mother and make sure I was doing all right. I was grateful for that. Now he came and talked to me for a long time and showed me the exercises I could do. And I did them every day, all the time, hours and hours. What else did I have to do? I used to like reading, but it didn't seem to hold my attention anymore. I used to like going to the theater, but I couldn't do that. I still wasn't strong enough. And places like theaters, they, they don't have room for people with unbound wings. You take up too much space. You cause a fuss. I'd been good at mathematics in school, but I couldn't fix my attention on the problems anymore. They didn't seem to matter, so I had nothing to do but the exercises the flyer taught me. And I did them all the time. The exercises helped. There really wasn't enough room, even in our sitting room. I, I never could do a vertical stretch fully, but I did what I could. I, I felt better. I got stronger. I finally began to feel like my wings were mine, were part of me, or I was a part of them. Then, one day, I couldn't stand being inside anymore. Thirteen months I'd been inside in those three little rooms. Most of them in just the one room. Thirteen months. Mama was out at work. I went downstairs. I, I walked the first ten steps down, and then I lifted my wings. Even though the staircase was way too narrow, I could lift them some, and I stepped off and floated down the last six steps. Well, sort of. I hit pretty hard at the bottom, and, and my, my knees buckled, but I didn't really fall. It, it wasn't flying, but it wasn't quite falling. I went outside. The air was wonderful. I felt like I hadn't had any air for a year. Actually, I felt like I'd never known what air was in my whole life. Even in that narrow little street with the houses hanging over it, there was wind, there was sky, not a ceiling. The sky overhead, the air. I started walking. I hadn't planned anything. I wanted to get out of the lanes and alleys to somewhere open, a, a big plaza or a square or a park, anything open to the sky. 
I saw people staring at me, but I didn't care. I'd stared at people with wings when I didn't have them. Not meaning anything, just curious. Wings aren't all that common. I used to wonder a little bit about what it felt like to have them, you know? Just ignorance. So I didn't care if people looked at me now. I was too eager to get out from under the roofs. My, my legs were weak and shaky, but they kept going. And sometimes, where the street wasn't crowded with people, I'd lift my wings a little and get the feel of the air under the feathers. And for a little, I'd be lighter on my feet. So I got to the fruit market. The market had shut down. It was evening, and and the booths were all shoved back, so there was a big space in the middle, uh, cobblestones. I stood there under the assay office for a while doing exercises, lifts and stretches. I I could do a vertical all the way for the first time, and it felt wonderful. And and then I began to trot a little as I lofted, and and my feet would get off the ground for a moment, and and, and so I I couldn't resist. I I couldn't help it. I, I began to run and to loft my wings and then beat down and loft again, and I was up. But, but there was the Weights and Measures building right in front of me, this gray stone facade right in my face, and I actually had to fend off, push myself away from it with my hands, and drop down to the pavement. But, but I turned around, and, and there I had the full run ahead of me, clear across the marketplace to the assay office, and I ran, and I took off. I swooped around the marketplace for a while, staying low, learning how to turn and and bank and use my tail feathers. It it comes pretty natural. You feel what to do. The air tells you. But the people down below were looking up and ducking when I banked too steep or stalled. I didn't care. I flew for over an hour till after dark, after all the people had gone. I'd got way up over the roofs by then. But I realized my wing muscles were getting tired and I'd better come down. That was hard. I mean, landing was hard because I didn't know how to land. (laughs) I came down like a sack of rocks, bam. I nearly sprained my ankle, and and the soles of my feet stung like fire. If anybody saw it, they must have laughed, but I didn't care. It was just hard to be on the ground. I hated being down, limping home, dragging my wings that weren't any good here, feeling weak, feeling heavy. It took me quite a while to get home, and Mama came in just a little after me. She looked at me and said, you've been out. (laughs) And I said, I flew, Mama. And she burst into tears. I was sorry for her, but there wasn't much I could say. She didn't even ask me if I was going to go on flying. She knew I would. 
I don't understand the people who have wings and don't use them. I suppose they're interested in having a career. Maybe they were already in love with somebody on the ground, but it seems, I don't know, I can't really understand it. Wanting to stay down, choosing not to fly. Wingless people can't help it. It's not their fault. They're grounded. But if you have wings, uh, of course, they, they may be afraid of wing failure. Wing failure doesn't happen if you don't fly. How can it? How can something fail that never worked? I suppose being safe is important to some people. They have a family or commitments or a job or something. I, I don't know. You'd have to talk to one of them. I'm a flyer. I asked Ardia Dia how he made his living. Like many flyers, he worked part-time for the Postal Service. <laughs> he mostly carried government correspondence and dispatches on long flights, even overseas. Evidently, he was considered a gifted and reliable employee. For particularly important dispatches, he told me that Two flyers were always sent in case one suffered wing failure. He was 32. I asked him if he was married, and he told me that flyers never married. They considered it, he said, beneath them. <laughs> Affairs on the wing, he said with a slight smile. I asked if the affairs were always with other flyers, and he said, oh, yes, of course, <laughs> unintentionally revealing his surprise or disgust at the idea of making love to a non-flyer. His manners were pleasant and civil. He was almost obliging, but he could not quite hide his sense of being apart from, different from the wingless, having nothing really to do with them. How could he help but look down on us. I pressed him a little about this feeling of superiority and he tried to explain. When I said it was as if I was my wings, you know, that's it. Being able to fly makes other things seem uninteresting. What people do seems so trivial? Flying is complete. It's enough. I don't know if you can understand. It's one's whole body, one's whole self up in the whole sky. On a clear day, in the sunlight, with everything lying down there below, far away. Or, or in a high wind, in a storm, out over the sea. That's where I like best to fly over the sea in stormy weather when the fishing boats run for land and you have it all to yourself the sky full of rain and lightning and the clouds under your wings once off emmer cape i danced with the water spouts it takes everything to fly everything you are everything you have and so if you go down you go down whole and over the sea, if you go down, that's it. Who's to know? Who cares? I don't want to be buried in the ground. The idea made him shiver a little. 
I could see his shudder and his long, heavy bronze and black wing feathers. I asked if the affairs on the wing sometimes resulted in children, and he said with indifference that of course they did. I pressed him a little about it, and he said that a baby was a great bother to a flying mother, so that as soon as it was weaned, it was usually left on the ground, as he put it, to be brought up by relatives. Sometimes the winged mother got so attached to the child that she grounded herself to look after it. He told me this with some disdain. The children of flyers are no more likely to grow wings than other children. The phenomenon has no genetic factor, but is a developmental pathology shared by all gyre, which appears in less than one out of a thousand. I think our dear dear would not accept the word pathology. I also talked with a non-flying winged gyre who let me record our conversation but asked that I not use his name. He is a member of a respectable law firm in a small city in Central Guy. He said, I, I never flew, no. I was 20 when, when I got sick. I thought I was past the age, safe was a terrible blow. My parents had already spent a good deal of money, made sacrifices to get me into college. I was doing well in college. I liked learning. I had an intellect. To lose a year was bad enough. I wasn't going to let this business eat up my whole life. To me, the wings are simply excrescences, growths, Impediments to walking, dancing, sitting in a civilized manner on a normal chair, wearing decent clothing. I refused to let something like that get in the way of my education, my life. Flyers are stupid. <laughs> Their brains go all to feathers. I wasn't going to trade in my mind for a chance to flitter about over rooftops. I'm more interested in what goes on under the roofs. I don't care for scenery. I prefer people. And I wanted a normal life. I wanted to marry, to have children. My father was a kind man. He died when I was 16, and I'd always thought that if I could be as good to my children as he was to us, it, it would be a way of thanking him, of honoring his memory. I was fortunate enough to meet a beautiful woman who refused to let my handicap frighten her. In fact, she won't let me call it that. She insists that all this, he indicated his wings with a slight gesture of his head, was what she first saw in me. Claims that when we first met, she thought I was quite a boring, stuffy young fellow. Till I turned around. His head feathers were black with a blue crest. His wings, though flattened, bound, and belted as non-flyers' wings always are to keep them out of the way and as unnoticeable as possible, were splendidly feathered in patterns of dark blue and peacock blue with black bars and edges. At any rate, I was determined to keep my feet on the ground in every sense. 
if I'd ever had any youthful notions about flitting off for a while, which I never really did, once I was through with the fever and delirium and had made peace with the whole painful, wasteful process, if I had ever thought of flying, once I was married, once we had a child, nothing, nothing could induce me to yearn for even a taste of that life, to consider it even for a moment. The utter irresponsibility of it. The arrogance. The arrogance of it. It's very distasteful to me. We then talked for some time about his law practice, which was an admirable one, devoted to representing poor people against swindlers and profiteers. He showed me a charming portrait of his two children, eleven and nine years old, which he had drawn with one of his own quills. The chances that either child would grow wings was, as for every guyer, a thousand to one. Shortly before I left, I asked him, do you ever dream of flying? Lawyer-like, he was slow to answer. He looked away, out the window. Doesn't everyone, he said. One of the great joys of doing these live versions of the podcast is that I get to sit down and have a conversation with people I greatly admire. Tonight is no exception. Um, please welcome my guest tonight, the editor of Octavia's Brood. She is a writer, activist, and scholar, Walida Imarisha. Hi. Hello. <sighs> Y'all. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. First, first of all, uh, full disclosure, we met tonight for the first time, but, uh, but this meeting has been a long time in coming. Um, in the compendium Octavia's Brood, there is a short story. Uh, by LeVar Burton. Yes. <laughs> I'm really damn proud of that. Y'all. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about Octavia's Brood, what the origin of it was, and why it's uh, so important to you, Walida. Sure, LeVar. <laughs> Normal thing to say. Uh... <laughs> 
So Octavia's Brood Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements is a collection of fantastical stories written by organizers, activists, and change makers. Exhibit A. <laughs> so my co-editor Adrian Marie Brown and I came up with the idea because we're both huge nerds and uh, both deeply involved in radical social change and realized that not only were they uh, complementary, but they actually needed one another because the basic premise of Octavia's Brood is that all organizing is science fiction. Say that one more time. <laughs> so all organizing is science fiction. And that is because... Because every time we imagine a world without borders, a world without prisons, a world without oppression, that's science fiction, because we've never seen that world. Yeah. But it's really important. We can't build what we can't imagine. Right. right? So we, we absolutely need imaginative spaces like science fiction that allow us to not only throw out everything we are told is possible, but demand it of us. Yes. So that we can start with the question, what is the world we actually want to live in? Right. So. Right. <laughs> I, I have often said that, that, for me, science fiction invites us into what I believe to be our two of the most important words in combination in language. Those two words being, what if? Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. What if? If, and I am convinced that it is storytelling in general, but science fiction specifically that helps us create mm -hmm. the future that we want to live in. I know that there was some kid like me sitting on the couch watching original episodes of Star Trek <laughs> and kept seeing Kirk reach back to that secret Velcroed place on his hip <laughs> because there are no pockets in the future. <laughs> I know. I've been there. <laughs> and that kid grew up and seeing those images of Kirk flipping open that communicator saying, Scotty, beam me up, right? That kid grew up, became a, an engineer, a designer, and is responsible for a piece of technology more prevalent on this planet than the toaster by a show of hands. How many of you have ever used or seen someone use a flip cell phone? That which we focus our imagination on is what we tend to manifest in this realm. Absolutely. That is the power. And so when our ancestors imagined a world beyond their world of bondage and enslavement, we, we are the result of that. We are the science fiction that came true, that was made real by those thoughts and projections, right? Amen.
Amen. Let's talk about Ursula for a minute, because you you met her. Oh, well, I just fangirled out. (laughs) 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 Sort of like I'm trying not to do right now. I'm like, yes, Mm -hmm." there's a 12-year-old in me screaming, just so you know. It's out. It's out now. Okay. I she, w- she, she, she was a giant. Yeah. And, um, and you know her work well. What do you think her lasting legacy to us, to the world, in the present and in the future, will, will be? Speculate for me, if, if you don't mind. Oh, I think Ursula has so many lasting legacies, I think for me the central one is an uncompromising and defiant commitment to radical dreaming. Yes. And she claimed that space her entire career for all of us and, you know, was very, very clear about that. You know, she didn't, she didn't, you know, well, maybe, you know. She didn't equivocate. (laughs) No. She was not an equivocator. (laughs) She's like, look. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Yeah. Um, so I think, that, I think that that space, I think so much of her work is about asking complex questions mm-hmm. and being comfortable with recognizing there aren't easy answers and sometimes there aren't even answers, but the process itself is the answer. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, her, you know, the dispossessed and ambiguous utopia, that's what she continually gave us was mm-hmm. ambiguous progress because human beings are flawed. And I think her work not only recognized that, but honored that. Didn't try to fix us, but instead said, well then how can we be our best flawed selves? Amen, right? (laughs) She was a, a social justice warrior, Yes. right? And her writing bore that out absolutely. in almost every instance. She was a fierce proponent of, as you said, radical dreaming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Imagining the world that we wanted to live in and then doing the groundwork, yes. yeah. right? That was the important part of her activism was we have to roll up our sleeves now. Yes. We have to make this a reality. Yeah. Because it's within our power. That's what we do. That's what we do. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I think the radical dreaming into lived reality yes. is that piece where, right. you know, she was always accessible, always connected to movements, always building from the ground up. She wasn't, you know, I mean, if she had been like, I'm Ursula, we would have been like, hell, yeah, hell yeah, you are. <laughs> but she's like, y'all, let's do this. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> Always inclusive, always inclusive. Yeah. Always bringing people together. Absolutely. Right. Through her writing and through her work. And the most marginalized. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. She's a great, great champion. Her her work, in in my view, will live forever. And I put her right up there with Octavia as as primary um, influences um, on me, my life, and my point of view in the world. 
Our producer of this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Smith. Thank you always to the very avian Matt Gorley. My great thanks to Recorded Books and Small Beer Press for allowing me to read this story by Ursula K. Le Guin. You can find her collection, The Unreal and The Real, both in print and as an audiobook. And I'm also grateful to Theo and the estate of Ursula K. Le Guin for giving their blessing to this reading. If you want more of the amazing music you heard on the episode, go check out the work of Marisa Anderson. She's touring North America right now, both as a headliner and with Godspeed You, Black Emperor. And she just released Cloud Corner, her debut LP on Thrill Jockey. And for more Walida Imarisha, visit www.walida, that's W-A-L-I-D-A-H.com and octaviasbrood.com. Go check out her writing. Walida, thank you so much for sitting down with me. And if you love the show and want to help other people find it, give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving a review, suggest a story for the show. We are putting together more stories right this minute for season three. So if there's something you want to hear, let me know. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelette of the Flying Radelette Sisters. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me at LeVar Burton on Twitter and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. Somebody already had my name. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word. Stitcher. KiwiCo creates super cool, hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and the foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. Kids can create their own arcade games, construct a hydraulic claw, or tinker with electronics and motors. And right now, KiwiCo is offering LeVar Burton Reads listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com slash LeVar. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash LeVar. L-E-V-A-R. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 